0: Well, it's wonderful to have Phil Orchard, who's been part of this community for many, many years, and has brought his wisdom um, and his uh, understanding of God and Scripture um, into this community to enrich us so many, many times. So, really looking forward to Phil sharing about Advent in a moment. Having foredoomed, I just got a very slight correction. For those who were eagle eyed, and there were two very eagle eyed people, um, the final slide that we showed just now on the screen with all of the timings for Christmas said that the Christmas Day service was at 11 o'clock, which was absolutely true last year. (laughs) And the year before, and the year before that. However, this year, by popular demand, we have brought the Christmas Day service forward by half an hour. It was actually a compromise, Ben. Some wanted nine. I think some people like it, like a uh, sorry, at ten. Some want ten. Some probably would like it at nine or eight. If your children have been up from four in the morning, you probably just want to get to church, get Christmas Day done, and get home to the roast. So we have compromised, and we put it half an hour earlier. So Christmas Day is going to be at ten thirty, not eleven. Phil, why don't you come and share?
1: Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Happy Advent! Is that a thing you say? Happy Advent? (laughs) Let's make Advent an adventure this year. Billy did the pre-event last week, the pre-Advent, but this is in the liturgical year, the first Sunday of Advent, where if you do these things and if you grew up in that sort of tradition, Every Sunday leading, coming up to the last Sunday before Christmas Day itself, there's a candle lit with a different theme each week. And the first candle of Advent is the candle of, who knows, hope. It's the candle of hope. Yes, well done. <laughs> That's a good start, wasn't it? <laughs> I was surprised by that. I was almost as surprised by that as learning that you played the violin, Theo. Maybe you could give us a, a, a demonstration sometime. I'm sure we'd be blessed. Shouldn't have said that, you really should. Now Advent, as Billy was referring to last week if you were here, has a twofold aspect to it. The word itself means just coming. The coming the arrival of Jesus, of the Messiah, of the Saviour. But it's for us, it's twofold. It's looking backwards and it's also looking forwards. So we celebrate of course we do at Christmas, we celebrate the coming, the arrival of Jesus. The Word of God made flesh to earth. But throughout the early church and beyond, the much greater emphasis was not celebrating his coming, but anticipating his return. And so it's twofold. We look forward because of the truth and reality and power and impact and miracle of his first coming we look forward to we anticipate we prepare ourselves for his return his second coming which has not of course happened yet and in that we put our hope you see this is what hope is all about hope let me give you a reasonable definition of the biblical meaning of hope it is the confident assurance That God will do what he has promised. And so God promised through the prophets of the Old Testament that a Messiah would come. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Almighty God. Prince of Peace. Emmanuel. God with us. Did God keep his promise? Of course. And has he promised that Jesus will return again? And will God keep that promise? So we put our hope in that, don't we? Good. (laughs) Amen to that. Actually, you know we can get so busy, not just Christmas time busy, but life busy that we we put these things if at all in our minds we put them so far on the back burner that we're taken by surprise sometimes when Jesus when we read the words of Jesus and he says hold on a minute be ready be be ready all the time be re- you don't know the day or the hour you just don't know in fact you'll see in a minute he said that he will return when least expected. So we can keep an eye on the signs of the times, we can uh, pray and, uh, and anticipate, but we will not know. Do not ever try to put a schedule or timetable to this. Be ready all the time. They needed to be ready in the first century after Jesus returned to heaven, didn't they? They needed to be ready. Did he come back then? No but they only had one life to live, and they had to be ready in that lifetime. And every generation since, and us today in our generation, be ready. Prepare. Look, those wonderful songs you, you, you chose today, Mikey. So much of them, strangely enough, about hope. As if arranged, almost, yes. But also about looking up, wasn't it? Looking to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. These these phrases that lots of us are familiar with. How do we make them reality so that it becomes something that changes our lives now? Because the hope, the confident assurance of Jesus' return is not to fascinate us, but it is to motivate us and purify us. Okay. So we celebrate the incarnation. Why have I put that picture up there? Well this is the sort of replica of a of a lamp from New Testament times. So when Jesus was talking about keeping your lamp burning and uh, and used parables about those who ran out of oil for their lamps, give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning, you know that sort of thing. This is the sort of lamp they were talking about he was talking about. Be ready, keep the lamp burning. Day and night. Be watching. Be ready. You do not know when the master of the house will return. Be ready. The kingdom's on the horizon. We don't know when. Now, Mikey, you gave us a medley of lots of wonderful songs today, but you missed that one. So let me just show you one about the incarnation as we celebrate. Thank you, Neil. As we celebrate the... uh, the first of all, The Coming of Christ. This is a verse of a hymn from Charles Wesley, the brother of John Wesley, as you can see from the 18th century. And, um, hello, I've got a fly over there. Um, <laughs> he likes it. Um, and this, is, this, is a one, this, this verse is wonderful poetry, but it's dense theology as well. That's why I like it. Let earth and heaven combine. Angels and men agree to praise in songs divine the incarnate deity, our God, contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. Whoa. You could preach from that for several weeks, you know, I think. Isn't that wonderful? Do you get it? Our God has become the, the eternal, almighty, God of the cosmos, of everything, has become flesh. He's been contracted to a span of life. Incomprehensibly, God has become human. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. This is a, an even, may I just risk saying this, this is an even greater miracle than the resurrection. I would expect God in Jesus to rise from the dead <laughs> but how does God of everything become an embryo in a woman's womb? To become a baby, contracted to a spa- incomprehensibly he was made man. This is why we wonder and we marvel and we worship and we thank Jesus that that he became flesh and blood just like us to live our life, to overcome temptation and sin and therefore that the enemy had no hold upon him and so he could die our death and not be held by the power of death which Satan has over everyone else and could defeat Satan and rise from the dead and give life and hope to all of us. Uh, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's our hope. That's what you can know today. If you haven't come to Jesus to receive this gift of new life, then we celebrate Jesus has come to make this possible, to reconcile us fragile, vulnerable, broken, sinful human beings to the eternal, spotless, holy God. To reconcile us, to bring us back together as God intended us to live and will in all eternity. Hallelujah. But that's celebrating, wonderfully celebrating, his first coming. I'm going to just talk for a few minutes on anticipating his second coming. And... Being ready. Being ready. Let me read to you. All of what I'm going to say is based around one chapter of Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 12. And so may I recommend to you to read on your own, outside of the meeting later. Take, take some time. Get a Bible. Read Luke chapter 12, 11 and 12, but 12 in particular. Read it again. This is just a portion from it. So, this is Luke 12, verses 35 to 40, which I think will be on, which are, is on the screen already. Jesus says this Be dressed for service and keep your lamps burning, as though you were waiting for your master to return from the wedding feast. Then you'll be ready to open the door and let him in. The moment he arrives and knocks, The servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. I tell you the truth. He himself will seat them, put on an apron, and serve them as they sit and eat. He may come in the middle of the night or just before dawn. But whenever he comes, he will reward the servants who are ready. Understand this. If a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming he would not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. Amen. Jesus, around this chapter, based around this plea to his disciples, he's talking specifically to his disciples here in the midst of a big crowd around him at the time. And he says, Be ready. Be ready. Look, in all of this going on, in all that you will face in the future, which I know about and you don't yet, you need to stay ready. You need to be prepared. He gives them warnings. Now, I don't know how you think about warning, if you just think of the word warning. Does warning conjure up something negative to you, a sort of finger-wagging warning? Because this is not a finger-wagging warning that Jesus gives. It's a preparatory warning. You will face things that you don't yet know about. I am telling you stuff that will help you when it happens. Years ago, um, I, I was a school teacher and, um, in my 20s and 30s. And um, I, had, I changed jobs once and uh, as part of the new... A job, the new promotion I got, I, I, I had to go on a two-week course to Paris. It's tough, isn't it? You know, these things, tough. So, we ha- so I was sent on a two-week course to Paris. And um, <laughs> they wouldn't do that these days, would they? There wouldn't be money to send you to Eastleigh, would there? I don't think. That, <laughs> but, but anyway, I was sent to Paris. And um, uh, uh, and as as. Um, lovely brothers and sisters around me in the church just prayed for me before going. One friend brought me a prophetic word and it was actually a prophetic warning. And basically what I remember him saying was, basically, when you're there, says the Lord, make sure you don't join in with what other people are doing. I thought, what sort of things could you be doing in Paris, I wonder? And I put it away thinking, interesting, went on the course in Paris, and after a few days, this course for us, English teachers and Italian teachers together, um, strangely, um, uh, was, was not as well run as you would want it to be, put it that way. And guess what? People started moaning and groaning, mumbling and, and grumbling, and, uh, and, could, and they had reason to. You know, I felt the same. I thought, oh, this is not really as good as it ought to be. Um, Surely we can do better than this. And as they were talking amongst themselves and sharing their sort of gripes and moans, suddenly this word came back to me, don't join in with what the others are doing. And it It checked me instantly. And I didn't join in with it. No, I didn't pipe up and say, oh, by the way, God has told me not to join in with your groaning and moaning. I just didn't join in with it. And actually, just that in itself was noticed by some people. Why aren't you saying things in the same way? And that led to some very interesting conversations. It led to identifying some other Christians on the the course. So we got together in a small group and started to pray for the leaders of the course and pray for the other people. Because we were there for two weeks, staying in the same place in Paris. And so there was plenty of opportunity for that sort of thing. And it made all the difference. Because God had prepared me through this prophetic word in advance. I found that really helpful. A warning was helpful, really helpful. And I'd just like to say quickly that he, he gives, Jesus here gives three warnings around this subject of Be ready. Keep your lamp burning. That one. Be ready. He says three things. They could sound negative, but they're helpful. And they're these. They will come up. In fact, the first one can come up now, Neil. Firstly, don't be deceived. I'll tell you them in advance and then I'll go through them. Then I'll tell you them at the end. You can tell I used to be a teacher. Don't be deceived. Don't be distracted and don't be disturbed. But they'll come up one at a time as we go on. Time permitting. (laughs) Don't be deceived. Jesus, in the previous chapter, chapter 11, I'm talking about Luke chapter 11, He has taken the Pharisees and teachers of the law to pieces. I mean, He has... He's invited by a Pharisee to his house for a dinner party. And as, as a guest, he starts absolutely criticizing the hosts. Unheard of. I mean, don't behave like this yourself, please. You know, you won't get invited again. But he does. And he, and he, 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 he accuses them then of all sorts of things, which I'll, I'll mention in a second. But then in chapter 12... He turns to the disciples and says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, their hypocrisy. So, he says, don't be deceived by other people's hypocrisy and do not, whatever you do, fall into the trap of being that same sort of hypocrite. What did he mean by hypocrisy? Well, let's have a look. Neil? Here's three things he said about them in chapter 11. You Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and dish. Remember, he's just sat down for a meal with them. (laughs) But inside, you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. So, hypocrisy there. Fancy saying that to your host just because I haven't washed my hands in this ceremonial fashion that you think I should have done and therefore you're all snooty about it. He says, look, you do things externally that, that kind of look good or, or are intended to look good, but inside, inside, where it really matters, look what you're full of. He compared them, I haven't got it up here, he compared them to whitewashed tombs that looked clean on the outside but inside were full of corruption, rottenness, decay and death. Oof, what a comparison. So there's the externals versus the internal priorities. He said things like, you, you're so finicky about thinking how you can please God that you tithe the mint and the herbs but you neglect the greater priorities of justice and love. He said, you should be tithing, but you should not neglect these greater priorities. Secondly, he says this, for you crush people with impossible religious demands and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. See, there's another aspect of false teachers, hypocritical especially hypocritical religious people. It's always the finger wagging. You must do this, you must do this. There's rules, there's laws for this, that, and the other. And never a finger is raised to help people draw near to God and find mercy and grace. It's legalistic burdens that crush people. How terrible. And thirdly, he said, for you remove the key to knowledge from the people, You don't enter the kingdom yourselves and you prevent others from entering. You see, the terrible thing about false teaching and false living is that it not only does damage to yourself, but it influences other people negatively and can actually deter them from coming to God. Causing other people to stumble, which is a terrible thing to do. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by these things. Don't concentrate on externals. Don't look for praise from others. Don't major on legalism. And whatever you do, don't lead others astray. But then he went on to say to, in the same breath in chapter 12, when he said to the disciples, look, whatever you do, steer clear. Don't be deceived by this. And then he said, In the same breath, he said, "And as well as that, don't be afraid of people. He says this, dear friends, he's only talking to his disciples here, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot do any more to you after that. But I'll tell you whom to fear. Fear God, who has the power to kill you and then throw you into hell. Yes, he's the one to fear. Whoa! Now, Doesn't that sound incredibly sort of harsh even? But that's the warning that Jesus gave because the issues are so crucial and eternal that plain speaking was needed. Don't. And he knew that these men and others, including till today, through every generation, would face persecution, danger, danger. Threat and even death itself. Let me tell you quickly about one, one man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German. In the, you can see from his timeline, 1906 to 1945. He was a German pastor and theologian. I'm reading his book at the moment, The Cost of Discipleship. Reading it very slowly because it's again needs that sort of time over it. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote the book, The Cost of Discipleship, back in 1937. Now remember, 1937, the time of the Third Reich in Germany, Nazism in charge, but the Second World War hadn't started yet. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer, with others, was an absolute opponent of Hitler and Nazism and spoke out publicly and initially fled the country and was helped to leave the country so as not to be arrested, but then he deliberately chose to return to Germany to face any suffering along with other people. He said, how can I possibly be involved in the rebuilding of Germany if I haven't suffered the same way with people? And he wrote in the book in 1937 that quote at the top, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Because he does. If you want to be my disciple, you must take up your cross and follow me and die to yourself. He may not have understood what he was writing there, but he was eventually arrested by the Gestapo and was imprisoned and finally in a concentration camp, Flossenburg. And literally days before Flossenburg Concentration Camp was liberated, he was deliberately executed and hanged to death. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And Jesus said, don't fear, man, they can only kill the body. He was ready for it. Those who witnessed, I've read testimony of those who survived in the same place around him, And they said they'd never seen a person so uh, calm and at peace facing death itself imminently. So don't be deceived. Instead, I would say, what is the answer? Well, the answer is if hypocrites are dishonest, saying one thing and living another, then we have to live by a different spirit. We have to live... In humility and in honesty. So we humble ourselves before God. We're honest about our, our sins, our struggles, our failures. We're honest and we fear God. Fear God because if we fear God it is the beginning of wisdom. It's it the beginning of knowledge. We fear God. It's not a contradiction of loving God. It's about respecting and honoring God and taking Him seriously and not having Him in our pocket, as it were. That's the first warning. Don't be deceived. Time goes on. Secondly, don't be distracted. Don't be distracted. Do you know what the distraction is that Jesus refers to in Luke 12? It's two- twofold. It's around money, though. It's around money, it's greed. And it's worry. Aspects of money and wealth and acquisition. Greed. Jesus said, Beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Greed, greed is the sin. It's not money or wealth that's the sin, it's greed that is the sin. The sin is in the heart, not in the bank balance. The sin is our attitude, our motivation. Greed is selfish, it's never satisfied, it's callous because it's only looking out for what I can get and not thinking about how others need things. Greed is about putting in my security in my acquisitions, possessions, money, and not in God himself. And Jesus said, after telling a story about a fool, a man who was rich and thought, oh, I'll build even bigger barns for my... My plentiful crops. Oh, great. And he said to himself, sounds like Christmas this, he said to himself, now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus said in the story, God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you work for? And then Jesus summed it up and said this. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. There's the antidote. There's the goal. Not to be rich, but to have a rich relationship with God. Who wants a rich relationship with God? Well, you better not be distracted then by greed. And you better not be distracted by worry either because that's the other side of the coin. And Jesus talked about worry and I was afraid I wouldn't have time for this and I haven't so I'm worried now. Yes, <laughs> Instead, though, instead, let me tell you the antidote, the opposite spirit to live by. What is the answer? What is a rich relationship with God? In the context of Luke 12, it's this: Don't worry, but be generous. Don't worry. There's the negative. Put aside the worry, but do something positive instead. Listen to this: Don't be afraid, little flock. For it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it and no moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. always used to puzzle me. How do I store up treasure in heaven? Where is it I put my money for God? He hasn't got a bank for me to put my money into. Oh, yes, he has. Jesus said, don't worry on your own behalf. You're more valuable than birds that the the Father cares for. You're more valuable every hair of your head is numbered. For some, that'll be more than others. (laughs) Don't worry, but be generous, especially to those in need. Let's not pay lip service to that. We're all of us strapped for, in these economic times, but this is what we also need to reach in faith to do to actually live differently and be generous beyond, beyond the minimum, beyond it, to wherever the need is. This is a wonderful, next one, um, uh, uh, Neil, look, here's a good, great example from the Psalms of, of, of a life lived like this. Light shines in the darkness for the godly. They are generous, compassionate and righteous. Good comes to those who lend money generously and conduct their business fairly. Such people will not be overcome by evil. Those who are righteous will be long remembered. They do not fear bad news. They confidently trust the Lord to care for them. They are confident and fearless and can face their foes triumphantly. They share freely and give generously to those in need. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. They will have influence and honor. Is that not a rich relationship with God? It is. Do we aspire to that? I trust we do. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. And lastly, don't be disturbed. Don't be deceived. Hypocrisy. Don't be distracted by worry or greed. Don't be disturbed. Don't be disturbed by a very, very somber truth that Jesus spoke about later in chapter 12 when he said, Do you think I've come to bring peace? Tricky one, this, because he is the Prince of Peace. But he said, Do you think I came to bring peace? No, I came to bring division. And he said, Even within your family members, there will be division. It's there. Father will be divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What is he doing? He's warning them helpfully, but painfully, truthfully about the future. This is what will happen. You will face opposition and the most painful, terrible opposition of all is those from within your family. It's the biggest barrier I've discovered for people coming to faith in the first place. What my family will think of me. And then my friends or work colleagues or other people generally. What will they think? And then after that, how, what, a, what, a, what a dagger to the heart it is if a family member disowns you or, 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 or persecutes you or just opposes you because you have found This rich relationship with God through Jesus. Don't be disturbed, disciples, he's telling them. Instead, be courageous. Don't be tempted to give up. Don't be tempted to compromise. Be faithful. Be courageous. Pray and worship and stay close to me. And always, 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 full circle, be ready. Amen. Now, we're going to finish by um, responding together. And we're going to ask the Reverend Theo Aimer to come and light the uh, Advent candle. This is the candle of what is hope? <laughs> it was a mouthful, wasn't it? Yeah. The confident assurance that God will do what he has promised. The confident assurance that God will. I've, we're not lighting this because it's a bit chilly in here, but it does have a double, a, a double benefit now. Um, the confident assurance that God will do what he has promised. Shall we anticipate the Lord's coming? Shall we, in the meantime, aspire to and pray for a rich relationship with God that we might be faithful to Him, that we might not be deceived, distracted, or disturbed, but instead filled with the Spirit of God and filled with hope? Now, I want to invite you all, come down. As we share in the last song together, come here around the candle of hope. If you're saying, yes, I, I anticipate the Lord's coming, I want to be faithful, and I do so want a rich relationship with God, come, come on down around, around here. Just stand anywhere you like around the table, and Mikey, over to you. Thank you.
2: the estranged.